3: apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts
6: the 27 club is a production of iHeartRadio and double elvis amy winehouse died at the age of 27 and she lived a life that played out more like a reality show than reality i can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true Seven would be the number of days each week the paparazzi would lurk outside her door, waiting for her to emerge. Eight more would be the number of months she would refuse to perform live after getting booed off stage at a concert in late 2008. Another two would be the number of cases of Jack Daniels she had ordered specifically for that ill-fated concert. One more would be the number of life-sized art gallery sculptures that predicted her early demise. Another seven would be how much, in hundreds of pounds, it would cost to attend a benefit show hosted by UK royalty, where her goddaughter would make her professional singing debut. And two would be the number of years she had left to live after she stood trial for assaulting a burlesque dancer, all totaling 27. On this, our fourth episode of season four, booed off stage, life-size sculptures, burlesque dancers in Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. man could have been a sorcerer. He was just missing the customary cloak and pointy hat. But he didn't traffic in sorcery. He was real. As real as the chair he sat in, and as real as the knobs on the console that stood before him. Still, he could have been a sorcerer. All because of the song. The song felt like magic. It took something old, which itself was already recreated out of something even older, and made it new, again. It was like listening to the past and listening to the future all at once. But the song could be rationally explained. Explained as in broken down, taken apart, dissected. The layers of years and then decades, the auditory dust of history. First, there was Apache, the 1960 instrumental by The Shadows, which itself was a cover of a song taught to them by their tour mate, the English guitarist Burt Whedon. Then came the incredible Bongo Band's 1973 version of Apache with a monster drum break played by Jim Gordon, which was released on the Bongo Rock album to little fanfare. So little in fact, that the album was out of print for years and heavily bootlegged. But it was quickly adopted by underground DJs in New York City, most notably, by Cool Herc, who described himself not as a DJ, but as a disc jockey. Because the discs he spun made people jockey. As Herc found out in the now legendary DJ sets at the dawn of hip hop, the people jockeyed hard to Apache. And how could they not? The song was explosive, life affirming, a rhythm monster. Apache became breakbeat gold for hip hop in the eighties. First with the Sugarhill Gang and later with LL Cool J, Boogie Down Productions, Young MC, the list goes on and on. You knew it when you heard it, like a familiar phrase in a new context. And then nearly 30 years after the incredible bongo band released their version of Apache, the same version that became a breakbeat staple, the would be sorcerer got his hands on it. He took the song out of time in more ways than one. He slowed it down stretched it out. He isolated instruments. A guitar's echo spun like it was circling a dream. And suddenly, the song wasn't just exuberant. It was looming. And it was just the thing that rapper Nas wanted for Make You Look. The lead-off single from his 2002 album, God's Son. But of course, Salon Remy knew that. He knew he could turn the early 70s sunny day cheese into a conduit for Nas's raw and honest storytelling a story that depicted the other side of New York City, far from the glittering buildings of Manhattan and back to its roots in the Bronx. Nas himself said that rap needed a smack in the face, and Salam Remy helped with the windup. He wasn't some business mogul who manufactured pop divas with prepackaged names like sporty, scary, and posh. He was real, always had been, still is. As a record producer, he asked his clients what moved them. He got inside their heads to hear the music they heard. His encyclopedic knowledge of jazz and R&B allowed him to pull samples from the last half century of recorded music and blend those sounds of the past with sounds of the present to create something new. Salam hailed from Queens, New York, 1980s vintage. His father was a studio musician, which meant that Salam spent his childhood mainlining the incredibly diverse music coming out of that global melting pot. He saw everything, he heard everything, he played everything, and God damn it, he was good. Good and real. This guy got it, and people could see it from a mile away, from the very beginning. He earned his first credit on Curtis Blow's Kingdom Blow record at age 14. At 22, he produced Here Comes the Hot Stepper, a number one hit for Aini Camosi. He worked with heavyweights like the Fugees, Biz Marquis, Ziggy Marley, Tony Braxton and Black Sheep, all by the age of 29. When Nas's album God's Son hit the streets in 2002, Amy Winehouse recognized its realness right away. She would regularly listen to the record while recording her own music. She felt more tuned in with what she heard on Nas's album than anything Simon Fuller in 19 management had ever told her. Now, as Nas would say, let's get it all in perspective. Around that same time, Amy also heard Lisa Left Eye Lopez's single, The Block Party. And that shit went so hard. No one was making records like that in the early 2000s. It was straight up alchemy she was convinced whoever produced it would know what to do with her and it just so happened to be the same guy who produced Nas's album salam remy but in 2002 salam remy was done well kinda salam had split the concrete jungle of new york city for the warm beaches of miami he'd spent 15 years as a professional in the recording industry by the time he was 30. His mother had passed. His hometown was attacked by terrorists. He needed space and time to mourn, to reflect, to chill. And that's when he met Amy Winehouse. And he didn't just chill with Amy Winehouse. Amy spent weeks trying to get a meeting with Salaam. She had to work with him. Not Simon Fuller, not 19 Management. They didn't get it, didn't get her. Salaam would, she knew it. Salaam knew good music, real music. Salam relented and took the meeting. Amy arrived at Creative Space, Salam's downtown Miami recording studio, with nothing but a backpack and a guitar case. Salam had one question before they got started. What moves you? Amy dumped the compact disc from her backpack onto the floor. Sarah Vaughn from the forties, the Beastie Boys from the nineties, Thelonious Monk, TLC, even God's son, homage paid to Salam himself. Salam was cautiously optimistic. This girl was either authentic as fuck or posing beyond belief. Amy pulled her guitar out of its case and she quickly tuned it. She plucked a few notes and then she sang, "The Girl from Ipanema." Amy's voice glided effortlessly over the Brazilian bossa nova rhythms. Salam was transported. The voice was straight out of a 1950s nightclub and it was powerful. There was no posturing. This was authentic. This was real. This was Amy. Salam picked up pretty quickly that Amy's talent had been mishandled and not properly nurtured. She needed someone who understood music the way she did. She needed him. His goal was to inspire Amy to lean into her influences. She played him some of the things she liked. He played her old records, introducing her to everything he knew about hip hop and jazz. Salon's goal was to transport the listener not to the past, but to a whole different time altogether. Outside of any category, outside of this world, out of time, altogether. And Amy was all in. She was focused. She wanted to go to that place with him. And they wrote songs together, Stronger Than Me, Fuck Me Pumps, and In My Bed, which is where Salon brought the magic full circle. Salam Remy took the instrumental track from Nas's Made You Look, the one he built from the incredible bongo band's Apache, the song that DJ Herc once spun at the party where hip-hop was arguably born, the same song that was a cover of an instrumental single from 1960. Salam Remy took that track and had Amy sing her evocative, winding melody on top. Salam wasn't just cutting corners. He wasn't reashing something he'd already done. He was reinventing his own invention, reimagining, recasting the spell back out into the world, out of the past and into a place where time wasn't so easily defined. Some called it sorcery. Salam and Amy just called it real. Deja vu was in the air. An empty stage, a lonely microphone. For those who had been at the Birmingham show back in November, or any of the other shoddy shows since, it felt like history repeating itself. It was just after 10 p.m., August 29th, 2008, and the final day of the 2008 Rock on Seine in Paris, and Amy Winehouse was nowhere in sight. Where the fuck was she? Yeah, there were other cool bands at the rock on the but they came to see her, the one the press was always talking about. The beautiful disaster, the broken heart marinating in whiskey and cigarette smoke, the ship going down in flames, right there in the public eye. The audience knew it was a little fucked up, that their desire to see Amy Winehouse live on stage had as much to do with the car crash of it all as it did with the song she was singing. But those in the crowd weren't the only ones thinking those thoughts that night. During their set earlier in the night, the raconteurs told the audience, this is for Amy Winehouse, who won't be here tonight. Hold up, where did Jack White get his intel from? Amy was gonna stumble out late again, right? She wasn't not gonna show up, and that couldn't be true. But why not? Cause she pulled out of the very same festival the year before. She wouldn't do that again. She was probably hung up somewhere between London and Paris, correct? Plus, the audience deserved to see her. They deserved to not be let down. They paid for their tickets. The stage grew more crowded with techs and roadies, tuning guitars and checking microphone levels, but really just staving off the inevitable. Amy Winehouse had left the building. The Sun, the Metro, the Daily Mail, they all knew why. Hell, everyone knew why. A medical doctor had penned an entire bloated open letter to Amy in the sun, urging her to clean up before she joined the ranks of stars who imploded before their time. In the eyes of Dr. Miriam Stoppard, rent was going to come due at some point, and it'd come a lot faster if Amy didn't put down the pipe in the bottle right away. Oh, now the sun cared, is that right? The same publication that made public a video of Amy allegedly smoking crack eight months earlier anything to get eyes and sell advertising. Amy knew what was expected of her, even though she never wanted it in the first place. It wasn't to sing, not anymore. All the audience at Rock Enceinte wanted, all anyone wanted anymore, was a train wreck. When UK rap group, The Streets, finally took the stage to fill Amy's empty slot. Lead singer Mike Skinner leaned into the mic and made a half-assed attempt to diffuse the anger. As you can see, I am not Amy Winehouse, he said, and then added, sorry, she's in London doing crack. Mr. Dryer Eyes Mate made the comment with his tongue planted firmly in cheek, but hell if it didn't seem like it came from a direct source. Amy's camp wouldn't talk to the press, and they didn't need another million questions on their hands, so they issued an official statement. She was home and had quote-unquote taken ill. To the concert organizers, that was a crock of shit. They batted around the idea of pressing charges, cancelling an appearance two hours before a show, cancelling a performance at the same festival two years in a row. Could you get any more unprofessional? Amy couldn't give a fuck about being professional. She was reaching her breaking point. The past five months had been a whirlwind. She had been rushed to the hospital twice for undisclosed reasons, arrested twice for very publicly disclosed reasons, developed what her father told the press was emphysema, lost her husband Blake to a jail sentence. It was just rushed to the hospital again for an adverse reaction to medication. The year before, she had canceled a large portion of her tour because Blake couldn't accompany her. Something was wrong, and it wasn't just the booze. Amy was hurt, codependent on Blake, dependent on a host of substances, and exhausted from the constant paparazzi. She needed to get away. She needed a break. Her father, Mitch Winehouse, made it official. She would appear at Bestival on the Isle of Wight the following week, and then she'd finally take some much needed time off. The tabloids had killed Amy for pulling out of Sense, so when she showed up 40 minutes late to her Bestival set on the rain-soaked Isle of Wight, she was well pissed and in more ways than one. She didn't rush to the stage to make up for lost time or to placate her fans who had been standing in the rain for nearly an hour awaiting her arrival. Fuck, they probably already made up their minds about why she was late anyways. She took her time backstage. She hadn't ordered two cases of Jack Daniels for nothing. By the time she wobbled onto the main stage with her band dressed as sailors and took her place behind a large wooden ship's wheel bearing the name... HMS Winehouse, the fans wondered which way she would steer the ship. They made up their minds with one look at what stood before them. Amy was a mess. Gossamer thin, disheveled, her clothes hanging off of her. There wasn't enough makeup in the world to cover her blotchy and rashed skin, ravaged by toxins from, well, you know, everyone knew. They booed her. Amy recoiled, she drank some more. And for the first couple of songs, she only sang a fraction of her lyrics. She was busy thinking about that wooden ship. The show was the end of the line. She'd drive that ship right out of the public eye when it was all said and done. Take some time away from these animals, these animals preying on her at every turn. She'd get back to being a human being, get out from under their sick, sadistic microscope. She was already on an island somewhere, far away, sand between her toes, no cameras, no tabloids, no pressure to be something she wasn't. Calm, peace. For once, she could taste the salty air and the freedom. And then the rabid boos from the crowd snapped her right back to reality. Couldn't they see how hurt she was? All her dirty laundry was aired out for the world to see. Is not one person here willing to sympathize? The booing became incessant. Amy's frustration grew and they would never understand. She wasn't going out with a whimper either. They wanted the beehive lioness with a substance issue. She'd give them the beehive lioness with a substance issue. Each new song in the set grew with intensity. Amy's energy was soaked in Jack Daniels in rage. She grew more cross with each boo, each unapproving look. Who the fuck were they to judge her? She was steering this boat right into a fucking iceberg and she was taking them with her. That last song of the night kicked off. A fast, almost punk rock version of Rehab. Primal, raw, angry, sipping her Jack and Coke between lines of lyrics, guzzling the whiskey down, hoping it would dull the sharp pain that had been building for weeks, months, years, helping her just push through this last bit of hell to placate them. It didn't. She tossed her drink into the crowd at the end of the song, took one last look at the audience and got the fuck out. Isn't that what they had expected, what they wanted? Amy fell into a car somewhere behind the stage. She was motored away. It was over, for now. England was over for now. The tours, the spotlight, the constant paparazzi, the drugs, over, 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 and over, she thought. Because this shit was never over. And before she was able to get the hell out of Dodge, she found herself in legal hot water. Not an audience that had been made to wait. Not a performance that went off the rails. Something else entirely. It was just the sort of thing that everyone watching had been waiting for. We'll be right back after this word, word, word.
2: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
3: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made
1: apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast take good care and we'll see you there
6: the sun rose on another sleepless night in north london she stood at the window and pulled back the curtain just a touch there they were of course for how long she didn't know didn't they have anything better to do first thing in the morning I looked back to the mirror to apply the Cleopatra eyeliner, lipstick, and the cover-up for the acne. Primp the beehive. Good enough. She sifted through the trash, clothes, and beer bottles that were all strewn on the floor. And there it was, the perfect scarf to tie around her hair and complete the look. The look, in other words, what they all came to see. She moved slowly to the door, and she knew what was on the other side news of the world that ancient sensational rag had just released a new video online amy knew what she was doing in the footage sitting inside what the paper deemed a crack den singing to blake she cracked the door open they screamed for her. amy 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 what are your comments on the video that was released you smoking crack you what were you singing what will you call your next album your fans love you amy they loved her sure whatever amy thought She also thought back to just a few short years before. Back to the beginning, back to a time when she didn't have to constantly deal with the cameras. Back before dozens of paparazzi hung around outside her flat whenever she was home or not. Back before Back to Black made her a global icon. When the paparazzi started following Amy around, it felt all innocent. And they were just people trying to do their job, trying to make a buck. Amy got it, it was the same thing she was trying to do. This is all part of being a musician in the public eye. She got paid for doing what she loved. And in the 21st century, this kind of attention just came along with it. It was almost fun at first. Amy would bring the paparazzi coffee, feed them, engage them in conversation. They were just people, just like she was. She could see that. She was too real not to. But they were everywhere. They caught her going in and out of her apartment in her car, restaurants, bars, on the way to the studio with Blake, without Blake, with her friends. The some days it all felt like there was literally nowhere to hide, and she continued to kill them with kindness, even on days when she wasn't in the mood. Fuck it, small price to pay. She remained friendly, and they remained friendly too, until they didn't. First, her star rose, and then the paparazzi multiplied, and they were everywhere, and they were constant. Amy was 24 seven news. Christ, she couldn't even leave her home. Now, four years later, in 2008, it didn't matter what she did or how nice she was or whether she acknowledged them or not. They wanted to capture the downfall in a camera's flash. And they wanted her acting unruly, looking unruly, slipping up and falling down. And they called her the Pied Piper of Camden because she was seldom seen without a dozen photographers hanging off her back, parading through the streets like a procession of parasites plotting after her. It was like some sort of sick, twisted fairy tale This was her life, though, and she wasn't going to put on airs for anyone, especially not some desperate people with cameras looking to snag a headline and a couple bucks. Amy thought about her upcoming trip to St. Lucia, away from it all. Two months, and that was it. She wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. She'd be on a beach far away. And until then, she tried to live as normal a life as she could. First up, though, she had a ball to attend. September. 2008, London. The charity ball for the Prince's Trust was supposed to be a happy occasion. Founded by the Prince of Wales in 1976, the charity had been helping 11 to 30-year-olds facing homelessness, mental health issues, or problems with the law to get their lives back on track. A who's who of celebrity and royalty made their way into the Berkeley Square Ball. Prince William, the Duchess of Cornwall, Robin Williams, John Cleese, Eric Idle. For Amy, The happiness of the occasion wasn't the famous faces or the money raised for the charity by the 700-pound ticket seats. Those came second. She was there to celebrate her 13-year-old goddaughter who was celebrating the release of her debut album with a performance. Amy stood backstage among friends, not being bothered, living a normal human existence for once, it felt like anyway. She had a few drinks. A taller woman approached her, said she was a fan, and asked for an autograph. It was all good, no big deal, no pressure. Amy would sign her autograph and send the fan on her way. The woman got closer and Amy could smell the booze on her breath. Amy felt the wall behind her as the woman's eyes went wild. She was cornered, trapped, like an animal in a zoo. The fan towered over her. Amy, take a picture with me. Amy tried to get back to the conversation she was having with a friend. The woman didn't move. She doubled down. She asked again. Amy felt like the woman had doubled in height. Her shadow loomed large. Amy tried to pull away. She had been pleasant, couldn't the woman take a hint? The woman called one of her friends over to take a photo and she kept asking for it and asking for it. And Amy felt the frustration bubble up over her once again, just like she had on stage at Bestival in the Isle of Wight. She wasn't Mickey fucking Mouse. she was a person and she had been more than polite. And Amy tried to push the fan away, but the fan didn't budge. Amy felt the wall against her back and the woman's boozy breath against her face with every syllable. She didn't know what the fan was capable of, what any of them were capable of. The woman put her arm around Amy, cozied right up. Maybe because the woman had had a few too many, the arm came in fast, more of a lunge than a friendly drape. Amy panicked. She pushed the woman away a second time. She had to get out of there. And the woman stumbled backwards, clutching her face. My eyes! She screamed. She punched me in the eye. The woman who had asked her for the autograph, she was a burlesque dancer and Amy thought that her claim that she had forcibly punched her in the right eye was bullshit, but the lawsuit wasn't bullshit. 10 months later, it forced Amy to stand in court. But when the judge asked for her testimony, Amy spoke honestly about that evening. I wanted her away from me, she told the judge. I was scared. I thought people are mad these days. Mad indeed. The whole world had gone crazy. And further eyewitnesses and a medical exam of the so-called victim corroborated the story and Amy was acquitted, but she remained rattled. Was this what she'd have to deal with over the smallest incidents of her every single eager fan? Is this what it meant to be famous in 2008? She hadn't done anything wrong, yet she had to drag herself to court. To do what? To tell the truth? She began to realize what it might always be like, that this might be it for her, Forever. Fame is like a terminal cancer, she once said. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Fame was incurable, and the trappings of fame would never go away. House laid on the floor in a pool of blood. An apple lay next to her. She was dead. Gunshot wound straight through her head. And the murder was an accident, an act of hubris. Amy was gone along with her twisted, broken, blues-soaked heart. The man sitting nearby with a smoking shotgun on his knee knew a thing or two about twisted, broken love. He was, after all, famed beat poet William S. Burroughs. He wanted to shoot an apple off Amy's head a la William Tell. It was supposed to be a joke. He missed. In January 2009, artist Marco Perego unveiled this scene as a life-size sculpture at New York's tiny artistic space, the Half Gallery. The title of the piece was The Only Good Rock Star Is a Dead Rock Star. The work depicted Burroughs taking Amy Winehouse's life the same way he took the life of his own wife in 1951, when he tried to shoot a glass off her head one drunken night. He had a clear target, but his finger slipped, and when you're playing games with a live bullet, one accident is all it takes. His wife died hours later, as a direct result of the mix of drugs and booze flowing through his system. He had killed her by accident. Marco Perego's sculpture begged the question, was the public, the media, killing Amy by accident? Were they the ones responsible for pushing her to the edge, forcing her to balance the pressure of fame on her head while their hand grazed the trigger? Or maybe it was Amy's fault. She was, after all, the one who was playing the never-ending game of fame and to this point was losing in tremendous fashion. She could have controlled herself more, right? Not falling in love with the wrong people, and there were no clear answers. If love really was a losing game, then fame was absolutely fucking a losing game. She never wanted to be famous anyways. The artist, Marco Perego, would explain that the piece represented the way rock stars were treated in modern culture, describing them as human sacrifices of the society. It was chilling, especially given what Amy had gone through the past handful of years. The paparazzi tracked her as if they were big game hunters looking to bag the most valuable animal in the jungle, prowling around every corner with their blinding flashes and incessant clicks. And the media took those photos and created her narrative for her through their bullshit headlines. She should have died so many times before, if you believed anything The Sun or The Guardian printed. But in January 2009, Amy Winehouse wasn't dead, thank you very much, and she was no longer on her way to being dead. In fact, she was doing the opposite. She was getting her shit together. Blake was gone. He'd abandoned her out of love, or so she told the news of the world. He made it public that he had been the one who got her hooked on crack and heroin, that he'd been the driving force in her downward spiral. He was out of jail and checked into rehab. Amy didn't mind. She was in St. Lucia, soaking up the sun and swimming in crystal clear water. She'd met her new boyfriend, Josh Bowman, there, a man, she said, who couldn't be more different from her husband. Amy was the happiest she'd ever been, she said to herself. She was getting sober, she was riding horses, once again riding and recording music with Salon Remy, and she was certainly moving on from Blake. Hell, he was even nice enough to start the divorce proceedings. So what if the settlement said she had to pay £250,000 to remove him from her life? It was worth it. She didn't have time for him. She was too busy finding the real Amy again. She was poised for a comeback. Her new album would be focused and pointed. No more slacking off. It was time to get back to what mattered. The music. She would return reborn. It was all smooth sailing from here on out for the HMS Winehouse. She'd spend the better part of eight months on the island, and when she returned back to England for good, her eyes were clear and she was, for the first time in a long time, healthy. But mixing the required rituals of fame with an addictive personality can be lethal. Balancing atop Amy's head wasn't her career, it was her sanity. And even if it steadied for a moment, The finger on the trigger of the loaded gun aimed directly at her would start to once again slip. She'd need to beat the fatal shot before it was fired, get out of the line of sight. And she had an idea too, a good one, that would get the photographers and the tabloids off her back for good. She hoped it would work. It had to. Her entire life was at stake. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Matt Bowden. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod, and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram.
3: Rockarola. What's up for your ears?